Section 3 of Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, by John Calvin, translated by Henry Beveridge. Chapter 2, Part 1. Man now deprived of freedom of will, and miserably enslaved. Having in the first chapter treated of the fall of man and the corruption of the human race, it becomes necessary to inquire whether the sons of Adam are deprived of all liberty, and if any particle of liberty remains, how far its power extends. The four next chapters are devoted to this question. This second chapter may be reduced to three general heads. 1. The foundation of the whole discussion. 2. The opinions of others on the subject of human freedom, C. 2 through 9. 3. The true doctrine on the subject, C. 10 through 27. Sections 1. Connection of the previous with the four following chapters. In order to lay a proper foundation for the discussion of free will, two obstacles in the way to be removed, viz. sloth and pride. The basis and sum of the whole discussion, the solid structure of this basis, and a clear demonstration of it by the argument, a majori ad minus, also from the inconveniences and absurdities arising from the obstacle of pride. 2. The second part of the chapter containing the opinions of others. First, the opinions of philosophers. 3. The librance of philosophers. A summary of the opinion common to all the philosophers. 4. The opinions of others continued, viz. the opinions of the ancient theologians on the subject of free will. These compose partly of philosophy and partly of theology. Hence their falsehood, extravagance, perplexity, variety, and contradiction. Too great fondness for philosophy in the church has obscured the knowledge of God and of ourselves. The better to explain the opinions of philosophers, a definition of free will given, why difference between this definition and these opinions. 5. Certain things annexed to free will by the ancient theologians, especially the schoolmen, many kinds of free will according to them. 6. Puzzles of scholastic divines in the explanation of this question. 7. The conclusion that so trivial a matter ought not to be so much magnified. Objection of those who have a fondness for new terms in the church. Objection answered. 8. Another answer. The fathers, and especially Augustine, while retaining the term free will, yet condemn the doctrine of the heretics on the subject as destroying the grace of God. 9. The language of the ancient writers on the subject of free will is, with the exception of that of Augustine, almost unintelligible. Still, they set little or no value on human virtue, and ascribe the praise of all goodness to the Holy Spirit. 10. The last of the chapter, containing a simple statement of the true doctrine, the fundamental principle is that man first begins to profit in the knowledge of himself when he becomes sensible of his ruined condition, this confirmed first by passages of Scripture. 
11. Confirmed by the Second, by the testimony of ancient theologians. 12. The foundation being laid to show how far the power both of the intellect and will now extends, it is maintained in general and in conformity with the views of Augustine and the schoolmen that the natural endowments of man are corrupted and the supernatural almost entirely lost. A separate consideration of the powers of the intellect and the will some general considerations first the intellect possesses some powers of perception still it labors under a twofold defect thirteen man's intelligence extends both to things terrestrial and celestial the power of the intellect in regard to the knowledge of things terrestrial first with regards to matters of civil polity fourteen the power of the intellect secondly with regard to the arts particular gifts in this respect conferred on individuals and attesting the grace of god fifteen the rise of this knowledge of things terrestrial first that we may see how human nature notwithstanding of its fall is still adorned by god with excellent endowments sixteen use of this knowledge continued secondly that we may see that these endowments bestowed on individuals are intended for the common benefit of mankind they are sometimes conferred even on the wicked. 17. Some portion of human nature still left. This, whatever be the amount of it, should be ascribed entirely to the divine indulgence. Reason of this, examples. 18. Second part of the discussion, namely that which relates to the power of the human intellect in regards to things celestial. These reducible to three heads, namely divine knowledge, adoption and will the blindness of men in regard to these proved and thus tested by a simile nineteen proved moreover by passages of scripture showing first that the sons of adam are endued with some light but not enough to enable them to comprehend god reasons twenty adoption not from nature but from our heavenly father being sealed in the elect by the spirit of regeneration obviously from many passages of scripture that previous to regeneration the human intellect is altogether unable to comprehend the things related to regeneration this fully proved first argument second argument third argument twenty one fourth argument scripture ascribes the glory of our adoption and salvation to god only the human intellect blind as to heavenly things until it is illuminated disposal of a heretical objection twenty two human intellect ignorant of the true knowledge of the divine law this proved by the testimony of an apostle by an inference from the same testimony and from a consideration of the end and definition of the law of nature plato obviously mistaken in attributing all sins to ignorance twenty three the mystias nearer the truth in maintaining that the delusion of the intellect is manifested not so much in generals as in particulars exception to this rule the mystias however mistaken in thinking that the intellect is so very seldom deceived as to generals blindness of the human intellect when tested by the standard of the divine law in regard both to the first and second tables examples twenty five a middle view to be taken viz that all sins are not imputable to ignorance 
and at the same time that all sins do not imply intentional malice all the human mind conceives and plans in this matter is evil in the sight of god need of divine direction every moment twenty six the will examined the natural desire of good which is universally felt no proof of the freedom of the human will two fallacies as to the use of terms appetite and good twenty seven the doctrine of the schoolmen on this subject opposed to and refuted by scripture the whole man being subject to the power of sin it follows that the will which is the chief seat of sin requires to be most strictly curbed nothing ours but sin first having seen that the dominion of sin ever since the first man was brought under it not only extends to the whole race but has complete possession of every soul it now remains to consider more closely whether from the period of being thus enslaved we have been deprived of all liberty and if any portion still remains how far its power extends in order to facilitate the answer to this questions it may be proper in passing to point out the course which our inquiry ought to take the best method of avoiding error is to consider the dangers which beset us on either side man being devoid of all uprightness immediately takes occasion from the fact to indulge in sloth and having no ability in himself for the study of righteousness treats the whole subject as if he had no concern in it on the other hand man cannot arrogate anything however minute to himself without robbing god of his honor and through rash confidence subjecting himself to a fall to keep free of both these rocks our proper course will be first to show that man has no remaining good in himself and is beset on every side by the most miserable destitution and then teach him to aspire to the goodness of which he is devoid and the liberty of which he has been deprived thus giving him a stronger stimulus to exertion than he could have if he imagined himself possessed of the highest virtue how necessary the latter point is everybody sees as to the former several seem to entertain more doubt than they ought for it being admitted as incontrovertible that man is not to be denied anything that is truly his own it ought also to be admitted that he is to be deprived of everything like false boasting if man had no title to glory in himself when by the kindness of his maker he was distinguished by the noblest ornaments how much ought he to be humbled now when his ingratitude has thrust him down from the highest glory to extreme ignominy at the time when he was raised to the highest pinnacle of honor all which scripture attributes to him is that he was created in the image of god thereby intimating that the blessings in which his happiness consisted were not his own but derived by divine communication what remains therefore now that man is stripped of all his glory than to acknowledge the god for whose kindness he failed to be grateful when he was loaded 
with the riches of his grace, not having glorified him by the acknowledgment of his blessings. Now at least he ought to glorify him by the confession of his poverty. In truth, it is no less useful for us to renounce all the praise of wisdom and virtue than to aim at the glory of God. Those who invest us with more than we possess only add sacrilege to our ruin. For when we are taught to contend in our own strength, what more is done than to lift us up? and then leave us to lean on a reed which immediately gives way indeed our strength is exaggerated when it is compared to a reed all that foolish men invent and prattle on this subject is mere smoke wherefore it is not without reason that augustine so often repeats the well-known saying that free will is more destroyed than established by its defenders it was necessary to premise this much for the sake of some who when they hear that human virtue is totally overthrown in order that the power of god in man may be exalted conceived an utter dislike to the whole subject as if it were perilous not to say superfluous whereas it is manifestly both most necessary and most useful Two having lately observed that the facilities of the soul are seated in the mind and the heart let us now consider how far the power of each extends philosophers generally maintain that reason dwells in the mind like a lamp throwing light on all its counsels and like a queen governing the will that is so pervaded with divine light as to be able to consult for the best and so endued with vigour as to be able perfectly to command that on the contrary sense is dull and short-sighted always creeping on the ground grovelling among inferior objects and never rising to true vision that the appetite when it obeys reason and does not allow itself to be subjugated by sense is born to the study of virtue holds a straight course and becomes transformed into will but that when enslaved by sense it is corrupted and depraved so as to degenerate into lust in a word since according to their opinion the faculties which i have mentioned above namely intellect sense and appetite or will the latter being the term in ordinary use are seated in the soul they maintain that the intellect is endued with reason the best guide to a virtuous and happy life provided it duly avails itself of its excellence and exerts the power with which it is naturally endued that at the same time the inferior movement which is termed sense and by which the mind is led away to error and delusion is of such a nature that it can be tamed and gradually subdued by the power of reason to the will moreover they give an intermediate place between reason and sense regarding it as possessed of full power and freedom whether to obey the former or yield itself up to be hurried away by the latter three sometimes indeed convinced by their own experience they do not deny how difficult it is for man to establish the supremacy of reason in himself insomuch as he is at one time enticed by the allurements of pleasure at another deluded by a false semblance of good and at another impelled by unruly passions and pulled away to use plato's expression as by ropes or sinews for this reason cicero says that the sparks given forth by nature are immediately extinguished by false opinions and depraved manners they confess that when once diseases of this description have seized upon the mind 
their course is too impetuous to be easily checked, and they hesitate not to compare them to fiery steeds which have thrown off the charioteer, scampered away without restraint. At the same time, they set it down as beyond dispute that virtue and vice are in our own power. For, they say, if it is in our choice to do this thing or that, it must also be in our choice not to do it. Again, if it is in our choice not to act, it must also be in our choice to act. But both in doing and abstaining, we seem to act from free choice. And therefore, if we do good when we please, we can also refrain from doing it. If we commit evil, we can also shun the commission of it. Nay, some have gone the length of boasting that it is the gift of the gods that we live, but our own that we live well and purely. Hence Cicero says, in the person of Cotta, that as every one acquires virtue for himself, no wise man ever thanked the gods for it. We are praised, says he, for virtue and glory in virtue, but this could not be. If virtue were the gift of God and not from ourselves, a little after he adds, the opinion of all mankind is that fortune must be sought from God, wisdom from ourselves. Thus in short, all philosophers maintain that human reason is sufficient for right government, that the will which is inferior to it may indeed be solicited to evil by sense. But having a free choice, there is nothing to prevent it from following reason as its guide in all things. 4. Among ecclesiastical writers, while there is none who did not acknowledge that sound reason in man was seriously injured by sin, and the will greatly entangled by vicious desires, yet many of them made too near an approach to the philosophers. Some of the most ancient writers appear to me to have exalted human strengths from a fear that a distinct acknowledgment of its impotence might expose them to the jeers of the philosophers with whom they were disputing, and also furnish the flesh, already too much disinclined to good, with a new pretext for sloth. Therefore, to avoid teaching anything which the majority of mankind might deem absurd, they made it their study, in some measure, to reconcile the doctrine of Scripture with the dogmas of philosophy at the same time making it their special care not to furnish any occasion to sloth. This is obvious from their words. Christostom says, God having placed good and evil in our power has given us full freedom of choice. He does not keep back the unwilling, but embraces the willing. Again, he who is wicked is often, when he so chooses, changed into good, and he who is good falls through sluggishness and becomes wicked. For the Lord has made our nature free. He does not lay us under necessity, but furnishing opposite remedies allows the whole to depend on the views of the patient. Again, as we can do nothing rightly until aided by the grace of God, so until we bring forward what is our own, we cannot obtain favor from above. He had previously said, as the whole is not done by divine assistance, we ourselves must of necessity bring somewhat. Accordingly, one of his common expressions is, let us bring what is our own, God will supply the rest. In unison with this, Jerome says, it is ours to begin, God's to finish. It is ours to offer what we can, his to supply what we cannot. 
From these sentences, you see that they have bestowed on man more than he possesses for the study of virtue. Because they thought that they could not shake off our innate sluggishness, unless they argued that we sin by ourselves alone. With what skill they have thus argued, we shall afterwards see. Assuredly, we shall soon be able to show that the sentiments just quoted are most inaccurate. Moreover, although the Greek fathers, above others, and especially Christostom, have exceeded due bounds in extolling the powers of the human will, yet all ancient theologians, with the exception of Augustine, are so confused, vacillating and contradictory on this subject, that no certainty can be obtained from their writings. It is needless, therefore, to be more particular in enumerating every separate opinion. It will be sufficient to extract from each as much as the exposition of the subject seems to require. Succeeding writers, everyone courting applause for his acuteness in the defense of human nature, have uniformly, one after the other, gone more wildly astray until the common dogma came to be that man was corrupted only in the sensual part of his nature that reason remained entire and will was scarcely impaired still the expression was often on their lips that man's natural gifts were corrupted and his supernatural taken away of the thing implied by these words however scarcely one in a hundred had any distinct idea certainly were i desirous clearly to express what the corruption of nature is i would not seek for any other expression but it is of great importance attentively to consider what the power of man now is when vitiated in all the parts of his nature and deprived of supernatural gifts persons professing to be the disciples of christ have spoken too much like the philosophers on this subject as if human nature were still in its integrity the term free will has always been in use among the latins while the greeks were not ashamed to use a still more presumptive term viz a textual vision as if man had still full power in himself but since the principle entertained by all even the vulgar is that man is endued with free will while some who would be thought more skilful know not how far its power extends it will be necessary first to consider the meaning of the term and afterwards ascertain by a simple appeal to scripture what man's natural power for good or evil is the thing meant by free will though consistently occurring in all writers few have defined origin however seems to have stated the common opinion when he said it is a power of reason to discern between good and evil of will to choose the one or other nor does augustine differ from him when he says it's a power of reason and will to choose the good grace assisting to choose the bad grace desisting bernard while aiming at greater acuteness speaks more obscurely when he describes it as consent in regard to the indestructible liberty of the wills and the inalienable judgment of reason Anselm's definition is not very intelligible to ordinary understandings. He calls it a power of preserving rectitude on its own account. Peter Lombard and the schoolmen preferred the definition of Augustine, both because it was clearer and did not exclude divine grace, without which they saw that the will was not sufficient of itself. 
They, however, add something of their own, because they deem it either better or necessary for clearer explanation. First, they agree that the term will arboretum has reference to reason, whose office it is to distinguish between good and evil, and that the epithet free properly belongs to the will, which may incline either way. Wherefore, since liberty properly belongs to the will, Thomas Aquinas says that the most congruous definition is to call free will an elective power, combining intelligence and appetite, but inclining more to appetite. We now perceive in what it is they suppose the faculty of free will to consist, viz. in reason and will. It remains to see how much they attribute to each. 5. In general, they are wont to place under the free will of man only intermediate things, viz those which pertain not to the kingdom of god while they refer true righteousness to the special grace of god in spiritual regeneration the author of the work de vocatione gentium on the calling of the gentiles wishing to show this described the will as threefold viz sensitive animal and spiritual the two former he says are free to man but the last is the work of the holy spirit what truth there is in this will be considered in its own place. Our intent at present is only to mention the opinions of others, not to refute them. When writers treat of free will, their inquiry is chiefly directed not to what its power is in relation to civil or external actions, but to the obedience required by the divine law. The latter I admit to be the greater question, but I cannot think the former should be altogether neglected and I hope to be able to give the best reason for so thinking. The schools, however, have adopted a distinction which enumerates three kinds of freedom. The first, a freedom from necessity. The second, a freedom from sin. And the third, a freedom from misery. The first, naturally so inherent in man, that he cannot possibly be deprived of it, while through sin the other two have been lost. I willingly admit this distinction, except in so far as it confounds necessity with compulsion. How widely the things differ, and how important it is to attend to the difference, will appear elsewhere. 6. All this being admitted, it will be beyond dispute that free will does not enable any man to perform good works, unless he is assisted by grace. Indeed, the special grace which the elect alone receive through regeneration for I stay not to consider the extravagance of those who say that grace is offered equally and promiscuously to all. But it has not yet been shown whether man is entirely deprived of the power of well-doing, or whether he still possesses it in some, though in a very feeble and limited degree, a degree so feeble and limited that it can do nothing of itself. But when assisted by grace, it is able also to perform its part, the master of the sentences, wishing to explain this, teaches that a twofold grace is necessary to fit for any good work. The one he calls operating. To it, it is owing that we effectually will what is good. The other, which succeeds this good will and aids it, he calls cooperating. My objection to this division is that while it attributes the effectual desire of good to divine grace, it insinuates that man, by his own nature, desiring good in some degree, though ineffectually, thus Bernard, while maintaining that a good will is the work of God, concedes 
this much to man, viz., that of his own nature he longs for such a good will. This differs widely from the view of Augustine, though Lombard pretends to have taken the division from him. Besides, there is an ambiguity in the second division, which has led to an erroneous interpretation, for it has been thought that we cooperate with subsequent grace, insomuch as it pertains to us either to nullify the first grace by rejecting it, or to confirm it by obediently yielding to it. The author of the work De Vocatione Gentium expresses it thus, It is free to those who enjoy the faculty of reason to depart from grace, so that the not departing is a reward, and that which cannot be done without the cooperation of the Spirit is imputed as merit to those whose will might have made it otherwise. It seemed proper to make these two observations in passing, that the reader may see how far I differ from the sounder of the schoolmen. Still further do I differ from more modern sophists, who have departed even more widely than the schoolmen from the ancient doctrine. The division, however, shows in what respect free will is attributed to man. For Lombard ultimately declares that our freedom is not to the extent of leaving us equally inclined to good and evil in act or in thought, but only to the extent of freeing us from compulsion. This liberty is compatible with our being depraved, the servants of sin, able to do nothing but sin. 7. In this way, then, man is said to have free will, not because he has a free choice of good and evil, but because he acts voluntarily and not by compulsion. This is perfectly true, but why should so small a matter have been dignified with so proud a title, an admirable freedom, that man is not forced to be the servant of sin, while he is, however, ethenlo dulo, a voluntary slave, his will being bound by the fetters of sin, I abominate mere verbal disputes, by which the church is harassed to no purpose. But I think we ought religiously to eschew terms which imply some absurdity, especially in subjects where error is of pernicious consequence. How few there are who, when they hear free will attributed to man, do not immediately imagine that he is the master of his mind, and will in such a sense that he can of himself incline himself either to good or evil. It may be said that such dangers are removed by carefully expounding the meaning to the people. But such is the proneness of the human mind to go astray, that it will more quickly draw air from one little word than truth from a lengthened discourse. Of this, the very term in question furnishes too strong a proof. For the explanation given by ancient Christian writers, having been lost sight of, almost all who have come after them, by attending only to the etymology of the term, have been led to indulge a fatal confidence. End of section 3. Recording by Lyle Wilson. Haymarket, Virginia. August 2009.